The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're in Psalm chapter 73 today as we continue on in our Mythbusters series. So the whole point behind this is that, as you guys know, we are launching a church in September in Grants Pass. Pastor Sam will be the lead pastor of Philippi Church in Grants Pass And their first service will be uh, September 9th, I believe it is, um, kind of their launch service. And then on September 15th, we and Philippi together are going to begin a series in the book of Acts, walking through those passages at the same time together. So the two churches will maintain fellowship and relationship because we'll be going through all of these things together. And it's really cool because, I mean, the book of Acts really is telling the story of how the gospel is spread throughout the world by planting churches and led by the Holy Spirit. And so we'll actually be doing that as it takes place. So I think it's going to be a really awesome time. But that being said, since their church doesn't start till September 15th and we just finished Luke a few weeks ago, we were like, then what do we do in between? And so what we've decided to do is this series on Mythbusters. And the idea is this. There are a lot of very commonly held misconceptions about either God, about the Bible, about Christianity, about the church, about God's people. Uh, there's Bible verses that are misunderstood and used wrongly. There's, there's all sorts of ideas Some of them are held by people outside of the church. Many of them are held and even promoted by people inside the church. And so what we wanted to do is just spend a series this summer going through and looking at each one of these and taking one week to kind of uh, um, focus or bear down on one of them. And, and that means that every once in a while, uh, you know, there's always good things that, when we, that come with correction or understanding things rightly that maybe we've understood wrong for a long time. It also means sometimes we get our toes stepped on. Because sometimes these are things we want to believe. They're things that are more encouraging to us, it would seem. And so our goal is to understand what these misconceptions are, where they came from, why people hold to them, why we might hold to them. But then to be able to go into the Word and say, but what's the Word really say? Like, what is the truth? And why is the truth actually better than the lie that we're actually holding to? So that's the format that we're using each time as we go through these. And so far, we've done four of these, right? We did, the, and these are all myths. The first one was a perfect home guarantees perfect kids. Not true. Amen. Um, we did a valley means a wrong turn two weeks ago. Uh, last week, Jeremy probably had the hardest one, that Christianity and science are incompatible. That's a tough one to make super interesting and not totally nerd out on science stuff or whatever. Uh, But thank you, Jeremy, for doing that. Um, Last week, I was actually preaching in Bend, Oregon last week for one of the other Acts 29 churches. Their pastor's on sabbatical. So I was there, and thank God we have so many great teachers here. Jeremy was able to tackle Christianity and science. This week, it's a little bit of a nuance that's really similar to the one that we did two weeks ago. The idea that a valley means a wrong turn. But it's looked at from a little different angle. And it's one that I think that we see all the time. So to do so, to look into this one, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 73. This is a, a prayer or a song of worship by a man named Asaph. And I think it's way more relatable than we tend to realize or maybe even care to admit. And he says this, verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen? Do you believe that, church? Is God good to you? Is God good to his people? That's the idea. In, in this instance, it's Israel, but the people of God are his church. 
Christians adopted into his family. He is our father. And so if we were modernizing, if you will, that verse, we would say now, truly God is good to his people, to his children, to his sons and daughters. He is good to the church, to those who are also, to those who are pure in heart. Do you believe that church? Yeah, so so does Asaph, obviously. (laughs) He's writing this, but it's not just a simple like, oh, God's really good. Asaph's actually wrestling. And so he's starting this psalm off and he's going, okay, listen, listen, listen. Truly, God's good. We know this. Okay, I know God is good. I know that he's good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Here's what he's saying here. And look, I I know God is good. I know God is good to his people. I know God is good to those who are of a pure heart, but... Man, I was in a place where I almost fell. Like I was about to walk away from God. I was about to walk outside of his will. I was being tempted to not follow him anymore. I was ready to slip. I was ready to stumble. I was struggling in a real bad place. I know God is good, but man, I was in a place where I was ready to walk away. Man, Asaph, why would you say that? What in the world could get you to such a place? Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, as I looked around and I saw people who are not God's people, I saw people who are not trying to honor God. I saw people who are not trying to to live and follow God. And I watched and I was like, "They're, they're just, look how well they're doing. Like they're just prospering. Everything seems to be going so well for them. I don't understand. And, and that became a stumbling point for him where temptations came at him that were telling him, just stop following God. Look what he says. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. I'm not sure how those two work together, but it means they're being fed. They're being taken care of. Things are going well for them. They're not in need. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heaven and their tongue struts through the earth. And therefore his people turn back to them and he finds no, and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So he's looking at these people and he's like, man, it just seems like everything goes well for them. It seems like no matter what, they're doing great. They're not struggling physically. They're not going through maybe the health issues I am. They're not going through the financial need that I have. They're not going through starvation or hunger or a sickness or whatever the case might be. They're just walking around and everything seems to be going well. And they're even like boastful. It's as if they're even mocking that God exists because they have no need of anything. Everything's just going amazing in their life. And he said, and that caused him to stumble. Like that caused, or excuse me, that was a massive temptation for him to potentially stumble or even walk away from God. And here's why. Look at the next verse. And this is where our, if you, our myth this morning is actually based. Verse 13. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Here's what he says. My attempts at godliness, my, my desire to follow God, 
all the good things that I've done. Man, I've been following God's word and following God's will and studying scriptures and going to church and tithing and helping in Sunday school and all those things that godly people are supposed to do. I've been doing all those things and I'm struggling and here's all these people that aren't doing any of this stuff and they just seem like life's going really well for them and the temptation that came is I've been following God for no reason. Like it hasn't benefited me at all. What's the point? Like, why do all this stuff? Why keep doing all this if things are just going to keep going bad? Like, is God helping me or not? Is my good going to be rewarded or not? And that's the myth that we're going to look at this morning. The idea this morning is doing good means you get good. It's, it's kind of a, a karma version of Christianity. You guys know what karma is. It's based out of uh, Eastern Medi- or Eastern. Uh, um, false religions, Buddhism, that kind of stuff. And the idea is that there's this force that's out there. And if you do good, good will come back to you. And if you do bad, then bad will come back to you. But eventually, over time, everyone ends up getting what they deserve. And and Asaph's being tempted by that. He's like, well, I'm looking around, and the people that do bad, it seems like everything's going really well for them. And then I'm over here just trying to do good, and I feel like nothing is going well for me. And at a certain point, I hit a place where I'm like, man, I, what's the point then of following God? Is there, is there benefit in this or not? He even says in verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, he's like, as I was wrestling with this, I thought, man, I can't even really say what I'm really feeling right now because it's going to betray generations of people that are following you. It's going to be a really bad witness to others. I'm wrestling with this, but I don't know what to do with it. And a lot of people feel this way. Now, they do it in different nuances. Some people might treat God as like a good luck charm. So maybe you put the fish bumper sticker or the fish symbol on your car or, or I, I see in social media a lot, you'll see people on their, their profiles on like Instagram or whatever, and it'll say things like God first, even though that like nothing that's represented in their social media life looks like anything like following God, but putting things out there or using the phrases like we've talked about two weeks ago, passages like Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and there can be this idea that because we're attaching some of these godly things to us, that we will get benefit and favor from that. Like God's a, a good luck charm. It's like a Christian little rabbit's foot that we can kind of carry around a lot of time. Now, a, a lot of people genuinely believe that. They feel that way. Um, even ancient, or not, not even all that ancient, Christian, Christian history in some uh, denominations and some old, uh, um, older practices would use things like icons and certain prayers to make sure that we're protected from the bad that's out there. And, and even prayers like the prayer of Jabez and stuff like we'll talk about in a little while. Like we need to say these things because this is how we, we activate good in our life, even to the point of saying that we obey God so that we get good. It's that obedience that then gives us good things. So we better make sure we're good, kind of Santa Claus Christianity, be good for goodness sake. A lot of people actually believe that. It's, it's kind of the Aladdin version of Christianity. And, and it's promoted more than you actually think, especially in more prosperity-minded churches, but also held by a lot of people in normal churches. It's just sometimes you don't know that you're really believing that until bad times hit. And then like Asaph, all of a sudden you're struggling and that stuff from the inside starts to sort of come out. Here's a quote, actually. This is by Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen actually said this. He's pastoring one of the largest churches in the United States, in Houston, Texas. If you don't know that, 
I'm actually kind of proud of you. You should just keep it that way. But Joel Osteen says this in his book, In Your Time. He says this, when you're in difficult times, it's good to remind God what you've done. God, I kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given, I've served, I've been faithful. In your time of need, you should call in all the seeds that you have sown. I, I'm really proud of everyone who's going, wow, right now. I'm just really, really proud of you, just so you know. I'm really glad you noticed the blasphemy in that. Here's what he's saying. He's saying we obey God in order to get good things. And then when bad things come our way, what we need to do is remind God, hey, listen, I'm one of your kids. I follow you. I've done this and this and this and this, as if God's going to go, oh, that's right. You're my boy. Okay, here's some blessings. Do you guys see the idolatry in this? This is like old school religion, the same kind that Jesus hammered. The idea that we obey to get and that our standing is based on our performance and what we've done. And this makes Christian service a tool to get what we want instead of actual worship in response to what has already been done and given for us. And it's dangerous, man. It's not good. This this comes out all the time. This was Israel's approach to God in many, many cases. If you make the right sacrifices, if you do the right things, then you'll get the things you need on the other end. But can I tell you right now, you can read through Isaiah, you can read through many of the passages in the Old Testament, and what you'll see God describing that kind of worship as is called paganism. It's when the people of God would go... You can get rid of that quote, by the way. We don't need that on there. One more second. Um, In the pagan worship practices, they would sacrifice to these gods in order to get. So you had the God of the harvest, and you would make sacrifices to the God of the harvest because you want to make sure that your crops grew. You had the God of this, and the God of this, and the God of this. And and honestly, even the book of Exodus, when you look at all the different plagues that are going on and all the things that take place, every one of those plagues that takes place is an absolute verdict against a specific God each time. The God of the Nile, the God of this, that, whatever the case, the sun God, all of these different things. It is God showing, I am the one true God, not these And so in pagan worship, you would make a sacrifice. It even got to the point people would actually sacrifice their own children. Idols that would be heated until the hands were glowing hot. And they would put newborn babies on the burning hands and let that child die in order to appease some gods so that they might get good on the other side of that sacrifice. And the entire Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, is a constant uh, verdict against that sort of worship, that sort of, that sort of pagan practices. And God, throughout Isaiah, even says, I am not to be worshipped like that. That's not who I am. That's not how this works. I am not a genie in a bottle that if you rub the right way, you'll actually get your wishes on the other side of that. It's pagan worship. And where does this come from? Well, some of it we just have to admit right now. Some of it is really cultural. I mean, many, many, uh, um, how do we say this? Uh, Experiences of Christianity throughout history haven't wrestled with this in the same way that we do uh, because many experiences of Christianity historically have never enjoyed the kind of comfort or benefit that we do or even would think of things like the American dream. Because their Christian practice was more uh, marked by things like persecution or poverty 
or weakness. And so it would never even occur to them that their Christianity was something they would do to get good life. They would look at their world and think good lives right now aren't even possible anyway. And so much of it's cultural. When we read some of the passages in the scriptures that talk about God having a future and a hope for us, the prayer of Jabez, things like that, we do have, we have to recognize, a certain cultural foundation that's there based on our experiences as really the wealthiest people that have ever lived before, that we have a tendency to read some of these things kind of the wrong way. And as with many of these myths that we're looking at, um, the thing being said, there might be an element of truth to it, but the problem is in our interpretation of those things. So for us, and in the American dream, American cultural Christianity, especially in the last, say, 30, 40 years, there's this idea of this sort of prayer of Jabez approach to it that just says, man, Jesus came that we might have life and have life more, what's the word? Abundantly. Who said that? Jesus did. So is it true? It, it kind of has to be if Jesus said it, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have life more abundantly. It is true. Jesus said it. The problem's not in what Jesus said. The problem is in the way that we hear and understand what Jesus said, because for us, the word abundant is attached to what? Wealth, excess, the good life, and because we look at it in a much, much shorter term window. So we want another one of Osteen's books. Hate to keep hammering on him. I don't really, but anyway, one of his other books is called what? Your best life now. Your best life now. There's actually a Christian rapper. I'm trying to remember his name right now. Shylin. <laughs> there we go. Somebody already knows where I'm going with this. He actually says in one of his songs where he's calling out the prosperity theology, he says, if you live your best life right, if you're living your best life right now, then you're actually headed for hell. Because if this is the best, that means heaven's not on the other end, and that's a problem. But we have a tendency to want that now. We are a people that wants instant gratification. I know this as much or more than anybody. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, I did what seemed to be the unthinkable some time ago, and I actually joined CrossFit and started doing this CrossFit six-week challenge. Let me tell you, week one liked to kill me. It liked to kill me. Like the, the first day, we did this one little timed test. It was 10 minutes. Or that's how long it took me. Other people were done much faster. 10 minutes long to do this one thing, and that was it for the day. Got to go home. 10 minutes of exercise time. I almost couldn't walk for two days. Like, I was hurting so bad. I'm not, it's so true. I'm not exaggerating this at all. Like, this hurt. I was like, this has never hurt me before. Why does this hurt? Everything hurt. And so, so you go through the first week, and the diet's controlled, and you eat nothing that brings joy. What's that, that thing now? Like, if it doesn't spark joy, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> nothing I was eating was sparking joy in my life. It was like, it was just like that, you know what I mean? Um, I even had to go to an Acts 29 ga pastor's gathering, and we had breakfast at the hotel we were at. had this massive, it was the nicest breakfast buffet I have ever seen. It was incredible. And I walk up, and I'm like, oh, egg white omelet, no oils, all veggies, please. No joy was sparked. No joy was sparked. And so then I, I go into each week you go and you weigh in and you, you're like, you know, you're, you're tracking your progress along the way. And, and here's what I actually said to my wife as I was going to my weigh in that day. She was like, what, what do you think your first week's progress is going to be? And I said this, I said, I don't know, but it better be significant because I need to feel like this is worth it. 
But do you hear what I'm saying, though, when I say that, right? I don't like the suffering. I need immediate reward because this suffering is making me uncomfortable, and my temptation is to walk away if I don't have reason to stay. And that's the mindset. And even in that same world, anyone, any fitness coach or personal trainer or anybody would say, no, you, the, the goal is long term. That's where you have to make those changes if anything's going to last or be sustainable. It's not in the instant fix or the diet pill or whatever the next as seen on TV product is. It's long term. And we don't do that well. We are instant gratification. Like we're the place that goes to drive throughs where you can get food in, you know, two or three minutes. But if they take too long and it goes to five minutes, we're angry. Like we are, right? Angry. Hangry. That's actually the word, right? Hangry. So part of it is this instant gratification culture we have where comfort and excess is all around us. And so we have that sort of American dream background that that looks at things and then affects our translation of different Bible verses. So let's look at a couple of them. One of them that was really widely promoted, I talked about here, 1 Chronicles 4.10. This is the prayer of Jabez. It says, Jabez called upon the God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from harm so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. That's awesome, right? Now, that's in the Bible. So is it true? Answer confidently. Come on. It's in the Bible. Is it true? Yes, it's totally true. Is it rule? Is it normal? Is it every time a Christian prayers, prays the magic words of the prayer of Jabez, then we, are op- we have the opportunity to enjoy the exact same blessing that he had? No, not at all. And we have to understand that because that sets us up for great disillusionment. Um, we've already covered John 10.10, 10, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And then the classic one is Jeremiah 29.11 as well. It's, it's actually one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it really is. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, thoughts of good and not evil to give you a future and a hope. It's one of the most popular, the most bumper-stickered verses in the entire Bible. And it's a great verse, amen? And it's in the Bible, so is it true? Does God know what, we, what he has for us? Does he have good for us in our future? Does he have hope for us? Yes. But does that mean no bad shall come to us? Does it mean that God only allows good things to happen in our life and so anything bad means we're outside of God's will? Of course not. And actually, the context of that verse that people tend to forget in Jeremiah 29, 11, is Israel is going into Babylon to be slaves. They're being taken into captivity. So if they prayed Jeremiah 29, 11 or prayer of Jabez in the way that we often do in our culture, it would seem like their prayer was not answered. In fact, all of them, they would never experience Israel as a nation again at that point. The context of that verse was to tell them, hey, here's what's going to happen. Israel, they're taking you into Babylon, into the city. And there's some false prophets among you, Jeremiah says, that, that have come. And they're saying, hey, Israel, as you go into the city of Babylon, don't be a part of anything that's going on there. In fact, stay outside of the city. Have nothing to do with what's going on out there whatsoever so that you can maintain your identity as Israel. Don't be a part of the city. Don't be a part of the culture. Don't interact with the people. Stay out completely. And God actually says, those are false prophets that are telling you that. I didn't tell you that. 
What he says is, what I want you to do is actually go into the city. I want you to build, uh, I want you to have businesses. I want you to have family. I want you to interact with the city. Be part of it, even though it's a pagan culture, and yet still maintain your identity as my people amongst those people who are the wicked, amongst those people who are pagan idol worshipers. And then don't worry, because over time you're going to feel like things aren't going really well. You're in a culture that's abusing you. You're in a culture that hates me. You're in this sinful culture, but don't fret. I know the plans I have for you. Good, not evil, future, and a hope. That's what he was saying to people as they were going into Babylon. It wasn't like a, our best life now. It was a, hey, just trust me. Just trust me. I know what I'm doing. I know what's going to happen. I'm in control of everything. Trust my sovereignty and trust my goodness. That's what Jeremiah 29 is 11 is like. Now, why is it important that we understand all this? Because you could say, well, still though, if someone wants to believe that, at least they're following God still, right? I mean, at, le- at least they're still hearing about Jesus. At least they're talking about Bible verses. Why, why would we spend a Sunday understanding why this version of Christianity is incredibly unhelpful? And here's why. There's three things I want to share with you. The first one is this. As seen in this text, this will affect our walk. Your own personal walk with God will be affected if this is what your view of Christianity is like. In a number of ways. Uh, Number one, you'll probably be exhausted and filled with anxiety because it's on you to do well all the time. And your future is not in God's hands, that future and hope. Your future in this kind of belief system, your future is actually in your hands. Because you have to be the one that's making sure you're doing everything right. That you're doing good so that you get good. That's how karma works. You got to deposit before you withdraw, right? And so... It's going to affect your walk from exhaustion. It's going to affect your approach to serving God. None of your uh, acts of goodness are acts of worship at all. They're all acts of works in order to get something good on the other end. The Bible has tons to say about the dangers of that. But also, when hard times come, it's going to affect your walk. Because just like Asaph says, like, man, my, my feet were ready to fall. Like, I, I was ready to walk away. Like, because I'm, I'm looking around and I keep waiting for my reward and it's not coming. And the temptation that was there is, what's the point? What's the point of this? Why are you following God when he's doing nothing for you? And he's wrestling with that. And the enemy wants to use that. The enemy often uses that temptation. So we need to understand that sort of belief system will affect our walk with God. Number two, it is going to affect our faith. Because the, the thing that you're actually, ha- that happens when that temptation comes is you suddenly are in a place where you're being tempted or you're feeling, uh, um, you're, you're feeling moved to doubt in the goodness and future and hope of the God who loves you so much that he already sent his son to die for you. And so what happens, you start measuring God's goodness based on what's going on right now. Well, that's, all, that's talked about throughout scripture as well, isn't it? John the Baptist in prison saying to Jesus, so are you the one or should we wait for another? Because I heard all this stuff and I've been telling everybody that you're the one that's going to be setting captives free and I'm still sitting in prison. Me, your forerunner in prison, this doesn't seem right. Did I pick the wrong horse? Did I bet on the wrong horse? Are you the one or what? And, And he's thinking, it moves not even just into questioning God's goodness, but in John's case, he's even questioning God's deity at all. Are you even God? 
And so many people do, it'll affect your prayer life. I mean, because what's the point of praying if you think God's never listening to you? What's the point of any of these things? What's the point of asking God for anything? When God calls us to put our anxieties to him, to bring our burdens to him, to, to ask him for those things, and instead we hit a place where we're like, it's either that God is not good, or he's not God, or he just plain doesn't like me. It's one of those. And many people walk away from God when they hit that point. Many people walk away from God when that happens. That's why we need a good theology of suffering. We need a good understanding of, of what a fallen world actually looks like. And if we're just honest, when you, when you read the Bible, I mean, it, doesn't it just seem like pretty obvious if you just read it? I mean, think of it like this. The very first sibling pair that we learn about in the Bible is Cain and Abel. And what happens? Murder. One kills the other and seems to kind of get away with it. It's almost from the very beginning. It's like, listen, in a fallen world, really bad things are going to happen, and a lot of things aren't always going to make sense. And the Bible from then on is filled with example after example after example of just that. That's also, I think, one of the reasons we talked about just a minute ago as we were praying for our high school seniors. I think it's one of the reasons, too, that a lot of people walk away from God as they're growing and they, they leave the house because they don't have a, a full understanding of how God gets them through difficulty, but their view of who God is is the one who makes things not difficult. And so then when hardship comes, they don't know what to do with it. And so people turn to things like drinking or whatever. It will absolutely affect your walk. And then the last thing is this. It'll affect our walk, it'll affect our faith, and it'll affect our witness. Because here's the deal. We can't sell people a false bill of goods. If, if our presentation of the gospel is always framed by follow God and you'll get everything you desire, your best life now if you just follow God, follow God because he wants you to have an abundant, rich life right now, and we take those verses out of context then people go, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll, t- I'll be a Christian. I'll try that because i got a lot of problems right now. And so if following God takes away my problems, I'm in. And then what happens? The problems are still there. And it's just like the parable of the sower that Jesus told. Remember that? There was the seed that was in shallow soil. There was the seed that got choked out by the worries of life with the thorns and all the weeds. Remember all that? So this is what happens. So we end up with this really shallow version of what Christian faith looks like. The difficulties come. The heat gets turned up in life and people walk away. And they'll say things like, I tried Christianity. It just didn't work for me. Or, God doesn't love me, I guess I'm not chosen. And especially, there's danger that some will wrestle with who have experienced that sort of Christianity that's tied to sort of a predestination approach. And I've literally heard, I I have a friend that I've talked to that has wrestled with depression for a long, long, long time and is no longer part of the church right now at all. It's a fishing buddy of mine from years ago. And he wrestled with depression, seasonal depression, which a lot of people have. When the winter comes, the rain, the clouds, and he just goes into this funk. And he'll like vanish for a couple of months at a time. And he prayed to be healed over and over and over. And the healing didn't come and he wrestled with it. Well, he was at a church that believed heavily in double predestination. And literally someone in the church actually said, you may not be one of the chosen of God then. I know, right? So messed up. So it can absolutely affect our witness. Let, let, me, let me show you now. I'm showing you this slightly nervous because of the organization that it's, a, that it's attached to. This is not an uh, um, uh, uh, indictment against 
uh, Campus Crusade. Or what are they called now? Crew? This is not an indictment against them, okay? Great things happening through there. But I'm using this one model of their gospel presentation that is not just part of what they do. It's part of many. And I want to remind you, things can be true. Our problem is in our interpretation. So everything I'm going to tell you is true. But the problem is how people can interpret and hear the things that are said, okay? So Jeff likes crew. Repeat after me. Okay, just making sure. All right. In fact, let's just be really sure. Say to the person next to you, Jeff likes crew. It's okay. All right, so they have their four spiritual laws. How many of you guys have seen these before, the four spiritual laws? Many of you, if, you probably have and didn't even know that that's what they were. But the four spiritual laws that are used in a lot of gospel presentations is this. Number one is this. Who knows it, by the way? What is it? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Bible teacher at Cascade right there. Good job. So uh, God loves you. Well done. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that true? Yes, that's true. God loves us. Yes, he said in Jeremiah 29, 11, I have a plan for you of good and not evil. That sounds pretty wonderful, right? And, and here are the Bible verses that are given uh, to support that. One of them is John three 16. I'm kind of liking this audience interaction. Somebody give me some John three 16 right now. Everybody all at once. John three 16, go. <laughs> Amen. Lots of translations going on out there. <laughs> Sounded like speaking in tongues, but that's cool too. So let me ask you, is that true? Yes. It's in the Bible. It's true. And the other verse is the one we mentioned before from John 10, 10, partial quote. The full, the full verse is, the thief comes only to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Is that true? It's true, right? So at the beginning, the, the, the word given to us in that sort of a gospel approach is, listen, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But what do people hear? What, what's the part they're hearing? Because if that's, if that's a standalone statement, to some people that means, man, God loves me and he wants me to live high on the hog in a really nice house and be healthy and never sick. And there are no New Testament Christian experiences like that. Zero. All of them are covered with persecution and pain, death, sicknesses, struggling, hunger, shipwrecks, snake bites, all sorts of things like that. If you put a list of all those sorts of Christian experiences and you told somebody only God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life, and here's what it looks like, they're going to wrestle with that. Like, wait, that does not sound like a wonderful plan for my life. That's where, because heaven, but we'll get to that. So rule two is, Man is sinful and separated from God. Therefore, he cannot know and experience God's love and plan for, the life, for his life. So here's what they hear. God has a great life for you. But you've sinned and fallen short of God's will. And as a result, you can't be close to God. And you can't know his plan for your life or experience his wonderful plan for your life. Then rule three. Jesus is God's only provision for man's sin. Through him, you can know and experience God's love and plan for your life. Now, is that true? Yes, it's true. But how do we hear it? Because to some people that can mean, okay, so if I get Jesus, my life problems will go away. And that's Aladdin Christianity. That's, that's idolatry. That's I'll take Jesus because I want that as opposed to 
the Christian walk, which calls us to sacrifice all of that to get Jesus. That says that Jesus himself is like uh, someone who finds a treasure in a field and sells everything he has to buy that field because he has to have that treasure and nothing else is of value compared to that. That's what Christianity is. And then the fourth rule is this. We must individually receive Christ as our Savior and Lord. Then we can know and experience God's love and plan for our lives. Now again, all of those things are true. But shared, uh, maybe uh, uh, uncoached or left alone like that, really easy for people to hear a gospel that promises a good, easy life. And then they become that shallow planted seed that when the difficulties of life come, they don't know what to do with it. They'll experience the exact same kind of temptation that Asaph had. And it'll be like, then what's the point? Like, why did I go to church in the first place? Why did I ever do it? Like, I've done all of this for no reason. It's done me no good. I've had no benefit. I've experienced no wonderful plan for my life. It either isn't true, he isn't God, or he doesn't like me. And that's the kind of witness that's given. Now, let me say, we are not a doom and gloom faith. As you share the gospel with people out there, please don't go, follow Jesus. It's hard. You know what I mean? Follow Jesus, we will be miserable together. That's our new heritage bumper sticker we'll have printed out. (laughs) No, no. What we have to do is frame Jesus as the reward and not frame Jesus as an avenue through which we gain reward. Does that make sense? I'm giving my ending away, which is probably good because I only have nine minutes left. This new format's throwing me off big time, trust me. The Christian life actually is characterized biblically by service, difficulty, hardship, sacrifice, growth, self-denial, and even persecution. God's wonderful plan for Peter's life was that he would be crucified. That was part of it. That he might then inherit eternal life after the fact because he was following Jesus. So what does the Bible actually teach? So Asaph says all this, verse 16 When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Amen. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Can I just encourage you and applaud you guys? On a beautiful summer day, there's a lot of places you could be. It is always a good idea to be in the sanctuary of God. He's like, man, when I was out there watching all this stuff, when I looked at the world around me, I saw a lot of things that weren't fair, and it was wrecking me. But when I came to the sanctuary of God, things started to make sense. He says, I discerned their end. He started looking at life a little differently. Not looking at where they are right now. Not looking at where he is right now. But let's consider the end. Let's think about the ultimate goal of all of these things. And it changed his viewpoint. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You made them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Verse 23, though, look at this. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Do you hear what he's saying? He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, I forgot. Yeah, they have comfort. Yeah, they have health. Yeah, they have money. Yeah, they have riches. Yeah, my life's hard, but I totally forgot. I have God. Like, that's the point. He's like, 
It's, it's not that God takes me out of the difficulties. He's holding my hand as I walk through them. And I'd rather hold God's hand in difficulty than be without it in rich. And so I'm doing it, preaching. <laughs> so suddenly he remembers God is the prize. Jesus is the reward. Jesus is the reward in a field that when we find, we give up anything we have to to make sure we have him. Jesus is the one that we will walk away from any other rich, any other health, any other anything to have him. Because to have God's hand to be a son of God, that's the reward. But that's not all. But before I say the next part, let me just say this. I actually heard a preacher that I, uh, that I uh, years ago say this. I've never forgotten this. He said, listen, it's hard to remember this at times, but the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the love shown us on the cross to save us and forgive us of our sins and to guarantee us future and hope is such an incredible act of goodness that if not one ever single thing good happens to you ever again, if you walk from today, what is today, the ninth? If you walk from this day through the rest of your life and your life is characterized by nothing but bad luck, so to speak, God is still worthy of our constant, total worship and praise. Not because of what's being done down the road, but because of what has already been done on the cross. See, we're, we don't follow God to get good. We follow God because we got good. Forgiveness, grace, adoption as sons, that all already happened. And so now our following God is an act of worship in response to what he's done for us. It's not some sort of weird manipulation. Listen, when Jesus taught people to pray, when he taught us to pray, he taught us to say things like, give us this day our daily bread, right? But how did he tell us to do it? He didn't say, here's the magic verse, go to prayer, Jabez, make sure you say that, and then do a few good things, and, and remind God of all the good things that you've done so that you can, can sow from the seed that you planted when you went to church and all those kind of things. He didn't say that at all. He said, no, God is not some distant deity that you need to manipulate and convince you're worthy of the good thing coming. God is what? How did he teach us to pray? He said, pray our Father. He's your Father. He's not someone that needs to be manipulated or coerced. He's not someone that's in our debt because of good things we've done. We're in a father-son, father-daughter relationship. He's our father. And you think of all the other passages in Scripture where it talks about God as father. Like, for example, when he talks about the anxieties and worries of the world. Where will we live? What clothes will we wear? How will we get food? What does he say? Your father in heaven already knows you have need of these things. What's he saying in that? He's saying, listen, trust the goodness of your father. You can trust him. You don't need to manipulate. You don't need to coerce. You don't need to earn. He's your father. Trust him. Trust in the goodness of your father. So number one, we get God. And then number two, he says in verse 24, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You hear what he's saying there? God is my portion. It's not the money. It's not any of these kind of things. But then he says something really important that is good to be reminded of too. That afterward, we will be received into glory. You see, 
there is really good future and hope to come. There is wealth and comfort to come. There is a promise of riches and health and prosperity and position and lack of suffering. It is real. It's in the Bible that makes it true. It's real. And it's the kind of wealth this world can't understand. I mean, God uses gold as pavement. That's a lot of wealth. There's no more illness. There's no more sorrow. There's none of those things. It, it is what we have waiting for us is so unbelievable we can't even get our minds wrapped around it. And we should think more about that. We should think more about that. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. I love that. At the beginning, he's like, I'm doing all these things and it's not benefiting. And then in the end, he's like, no, 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 no. I, what I need to focus on is all the things God has done. And he's focused on that. This idea of heaven and, and heavenly reward is, uh, um, it's pretty awesome. Let, let, me, let me close with one more thing before we say that. What if karma Christianity was actually true? Like, what if that's what it was? What if do good, get good was real? You actually do get what you deserve. What would the Bible teach us? Well, let's just look at three verses in Romans that are not pulled out of context by any means whatsoever. Look at these. Romans 3.10 says this. Do we have those? Yeah. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So that's a problem. If, if being good means you get good, right off the bat, we have, a little, we have a good problem, don't we? Verse 23 of Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 23 of Romans 6 says what? And so the wages of sin is death. In other words, the thing that we actually deserve and have earned, our payment for our lives, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and my favorite, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He's like, don't forget this. He's saying it twice. That's on purpose because we tend to forget. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no man may boast. See, we already got what we didn't deserve in that we got grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Karma Christianity, we should desperately be happy or hope that it's not true or we're in big trouble. But not only do we get Jesus, we get heaven. And I just want to remind you of this because like I said, we are the people of instant gratification. We want reward now. But I think the more we think about what that reward is going to look like one day, it does make the suffering more worth it, Right? It's like when you're doing the diet and you put like your old skinny picture on your mirror every day or on your refrigerator even better. It's like, that's the goal. That's what I need to remember. That's what I'm actually after. This is a great quote. This is from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Weight of Glory. And he says this. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. 
If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. He says this. He's saying, look, the idea is not that we should desire God's good plan for our life. The idea is not that we should ask God for good. The idea is that not that we should want blessing or enjoyment or any of those kind of things. We are not a mopey, mournful faith or religion. The problem is, is that we tend to read all of those things and say, what we want is this stuff now. And God's saying, why would you mess with that stuff now? Store for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't corrupt. Things that will last you for all eternity instead of wasting your time with things here that can never fully satisfy you and they will never ever last. God wants us to desire heaven. God wants us to desire. I think our desire for comfort that gets a little out of control is there on purpose. It just gets misdirected. And so today we have opportunity just to remember the truth. That Jesus Christ has given us more than we can ever possibly imagine. And we can remember this carefully as well. 1 Peter 5 says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So to him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? Trust in the goodness of your Father. Don't be, interpret, don't be tempted to, to interpret God's goodness based on the things that you're going through today or the things you might go through tomorrow. God has demonstrated his goodness once and for all in a way that can never be argued with on the cross of Jesus Christ where the death that we deserve was taken on by him so that we get to live the life that he earned. And heaven's coming. And it's going to be Amazing. You know there'll be no CrossFit in heaven? (laughs) Or at least it won't hurt. It's good to desire those things. But more importantly, don't forget, the ultimate prize is we have God himself. Amen? At this time, we're going to transition into a time of worship. 
Uh, our worship can take place in many different ways. For some of us, it's an opportunity to respond to what we've just seen. It's an opportunity to do business with God, maybe. Maybe you're going through difficulty, and maybe you've been wrestling with Him, and, and now you're being reminded, that's right, He is good. I can still trust that. And, and so you can go to Him, and you can confess, and you can, can be reunited with that, and just understand that, and just spend some time with Him, enjoying the love of the Father. Uh, for others, maybe you don't know God's love at all and you need to, then I'll be right down here. Just come talk to me. Let me pray with you. Let me talk to you about Jesus and introduce you to our Father. Uh, for others, we're going to worship. We want to sing in response because what happens is the same thing that Asaph was talking about in his psalm. Now, he came into the sanctuary of God and remembered God's goodness. And, and so what is his result at the end? Man, God, you are my portion. He begins to sing of the goodness of God. And so that's what we do when we worship. We are declaring God's goodness. We're declaring God's acts. We are worshiping him for the good he has already done in, in our lives. And so I want to encourage you to worship. And also, those that are part of the family here, what we give. The, the brothers will be coming forward during the first song. They'll receive tithes and offerings. That's not just fundraising, though we do. We, we invite you to partner with us in a gospel expansion throughout the valley. We invite you to do so. But it's also on our end. It's an act of worship. It's not something we do to get good out of God. It's something we do in response to the fact that God has saved us. It's an act of worship. So I want to encourage you and invite you to worship God. He is good. He loves you. And he does have a plan for your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, that as we worship you, you would just, um, just fan the flame of affection that we have for you. Lord, may you encourage us. Lord, may you build us up, Lord, in our faith. May we realize and remember your goodness. May you be honored by our worship and our singing. May you relieve burdens as we lift our hands to you. And may you hear the prayers of those in this room who come and do business with you right now. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for this reminder from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As the guys come forward this morning and receive the offering, after that basket's gone by, man, I encourage you, stand, sing, go to your knees, pray, worship, but spend time with God and let's worship him. Amen, church? Praise the Lord, his mercy. Since they are many, His mercy is more. What love could remember? No wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowingly counts not. Song thrown into the sea without bottom or shore. And our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Patience and wait. Thank you.
God been good to us? Amen? He is good. Amen. Let's go tell somebody about his goodness this week. Amen, church? God bless you guys. We love you. Uh, don't forget Pastor's Coffee. Come by and say hi. We'll be in the coffee shop over here. May the Lord bless you this week. May he be with you. May you experience his, his presence, whether good or bad. And may you know how much God loves you. Amen? Amen. Have a great day, guys.